0: Welcome back to part two. I'm delighted to introduce Callum Swanston. Callum's going to take us through some techniques that allow us to understand the new patterns of travel demand and therefore help us gauge the best ways for rail to serve them. Welcome to Callum. Um, Callum Swanston. Uh, who I have to say I'm particularly grateful for turning up today considering um, you left the job that uh, you were in when we originally spoke and you've (laughs) been kind enough to keep the appointment and uh, really thank you very much for that It's greatly appreciated. Um, So I'll let you introduce um, yourself
1: and uh, over to you, Callum. Cool, thank you very much John for the introduction and thank you everyone for having me here today. Um, yes, yeah, so John mentioned I moved to High Speed Two Limited last October. But as I kind of move away from consultant to client side, I've stayed very, very close and ended up with working at members of my old team at Sistra. So, so as close as I could be still to, to Sistra while moving away. Um, I thought I'd indulge with a, a little bit of a, a kind of explanation of why I'm here and try and justify me, me being here a little bit. Um, so, I started as a graduate transport modeller in Sistra's uh, rail modelling team. Actually, ended up applying for a, a, a transport planning role rather than the modelling role, but um, straight out of uni, you kind of get what you're given. So I was, I was happy to start in a more uh, kind of numerate role than, than initially planned. Um, worked in a variety of quite exciting rail modeling and also bus um, concessionary fares type of projects. So one of those a uh, kind of recurrent piece was where I ended up working with John uh, as my client, uh, which was kind of the West Coast passenger proposition, trying to understand how we might um, kind of optioneer and find the best options for Ice Speed 2's future rolling stock in terms of station initiatives and interior layout configuration. Uh, and that would, the whole kind of premise of that was trying to go beyond some of the standard modeling practice to identify where we could push things a little bit further and think about novel ideas and, and taking it a, a little bit further than the traditional techniques. So it ties in uh, nicely with, with some of the elements of the presentation today. Um, as, part my, my Sister, kind of, well, as part of my role at Sistra, I kind of, well, not as part of my role, aside from the role, um, myself and a colleague pitched the idea of a process automation and data science team about two, three years ago, um, which is something that would be done at cost. We pitched it to senior Management, managed to get enough buy-in to get no budget, but given permission to proceed, which is all part of the fun. Um, And over the next 18 months, we kind of worked at that uh, with little quick wins and low-hanging fruit to try and build up a bit of a reputation. Um, And we're invited to the newly formed Technical Leadership Group, which is a very grand name for a bunch of people who like doing coding to try and uh, lay foundations for a formal data science team initiative um, rather than a, a team or two who were just kind of doing their own thing and enjoying what they were doing. So I worked in that team which had a couple of uh, business directors who had like startup experience in transport uh, and a whole host of computer science grads who basically put me out of a job with how efficient they were. Uh, I worked in that team for about a year to 18 months before moving to speed 2 Limited's transport modeling team uh, in October with my first week being the week that they kind of canned two-thirds of the project, which it has been an interesting time. <laughs> Thanks, John. Um, so I thought I'd start again by trying to justify why I was here and talking a little bit about what's the point in modelling and why do we want to do it from a my very crude understanding of a kind of more operational perspective. Um, so the first is that transport as an industry is, is anything but static. We're constantly trying to improve operational efficiencies and the passenger experience, both in terms of the day-to-day, trying to get people on the trains, but also in terms of the longer term experience of the railways, performance and, uh, and the like. So this kind of dynamism and, and pursuit of continual improvement um, in some sense requires a lot of decisions to be made uh, and decisions require money and evidence. You know, a lot of the decisions we make about the operation and what we're going to do to rolling stock and, and stations and things like that will impact large numbers of people for a long time in some cases and will cost a hell of a lot of money to do. In a lot of other cases, so to get those decisions passed and find the best options, we're going to need these to be defensible and then grounded in a lot of robust evidence that will hold up to scrutiny. Next slide, please. I'm, I'm going to try and pitch trans modeling as a solution to trying to find some other evidence. Uh, you may disagree with me by the end, but that's absolutely fine. Um, so I'm, g- I'm going to straight away caveat what I'm saying in that modeling by definition isn't perfect. It's almost impossible to um, predict the future and modelling itself is, is a kind of crude simplification in most senses of our reality. You know, if you think about an individual person making their journey to work on the C2C line, they will be having multiple different uh, you know, thoughts in their head that will inform their decisions of do they walk to the station, take the bus, what time are they getting up, are they going in, if it's rainy, if it's sunny, all of those different things for just one individual, let alone for kind of a whole uh, demand base. That's going to be impossible to model without something like a digital twin or uh, really really heavily invested in uh, like agent or activity based model so traditional transfer modeling in that sense is really really about making assumptions and making approximations and trying to get things uh as right as you can in a, in a proportionate and um, proportionate way and that's oh sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna keep on going on for a little longer if i'm right. sorry um, so, models are, are what they eat, that was all for the first bullet point. I saw a glance across, <laughs> I a bit like, oh, that's a move. No, no, just checking my I was, uh, thank you though. Um, yeah, so basically the quality of model outputs are going to almost entirely depend in some sense on what you're putting into them, which is where data is really, really important and that forms a lot about um, what, I'll, what I'll talk through today. So, data being a main constraint to model output quality as well as uncertainty with, with Covid and future forecasting. Um, as well so just got a very very simplistic view of what makes up a model you've got your data which is both looking back to the past and what we can infer from historical observations and then trying to forecast the future with all of the uncertainty uh, assumptions about different scenarios of, again what we can think about the future um, and then this kind of research and behavioral science angle which john talked through and, and gave a really nice flavor of today as well uh, and a healthy dose of professional judgment for anyone who's worked with consultants and and waving and choosing bits to get us to uh, a number that we're happy with at the end. Um, I'm going to pop the, the kind of quote uh, at the bottom it. it's in its own separate box as well. This is one that tends to be banded around at every transfer modeling conference and presentation I've been to, uh, which is really, really unhelpful when people are trying to justify modeling as it's uh, as a kind of scientific practice by first saying that all models are wrong, but we can still be useful. Um, so, again, impossible to predict the future, but it's really useful to help us understand. Uh, the kind of best option or the most likely option going forward, and try and understand the range of possible outcomes and responses to, to changes in transport, the operation,
2: um, and, and passenger experience. Yeah, yeah. So, there's someone that does a um, Could you provide an example of where this would be relevant and something that you might work on so that I've got an understanding of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, some of the work that I did with John on the passenger proposition is, is a really good example of that. I mean, I think with some of the work that you did with Jujara and the designers, they had 180 slides of potential different interior uh, configurations, and that was all down to, you know, do you have boxed meals and catering? Do you have like a vending machine? Do you have a full restaurant car? Loads of different permutations of what the single catering offer on iSpeed 2s future trains could look like. Um, and it was all about trying to understand what's worth investing more in. From the research, can we understand how much typical passengers value um, catering offer? Is it going to differ between standard and first class? Probably yes. How are things going to look? And then trying to build from a demand base, forecast how our kind of demand base might change in the future with population and GDP growth. Are we going to have more people that are more well off in future who might be more uh, you know affluent and able to to afford rail? Are they going to be interested in catering and trying to get us to a, a number at the end of, we think catering is worth 0.5% or something. Jesus. So, it's, so, so that, that kind of thing, but it can take a lot of different permutations. Yeah, was almost. Basically,
2: the first exercise we did actually I think, oh, that was a good example of sort of thing. It? Um, so, you know, sort of uh, that whole piece has been justified by uh, to say mm. it's actually worth People uh, appreciate it enough to, to
1: make it worth the time and so. That was a really, really interesting piece of work. And again, I think because we decided we'd try and deviate from some of these industry standard traditional sources at the top, it, it was a real challenge. We ended up going to quite lengths uh, to, to quite far away places to try and find research that supported that passengers actually do care about catering in a what sense. So there's a, a, lot, a lot of interesting stuff fed into that.
2: My personal favourite was the uh, Korean episode. Yeah, that that was by a Chinese university trying to understand the value that's coming from that. Uh, that was uh, interesting. One the graph that came out of that was mm. saying that the English movie was the most smart. It's, it's it's cool because it does it does you can track it. Yeah, it's, it, you know it's proximal. The point.
1: Yeah, we had some pretty wacky stuff. There was a, an Indonesian, um, like fried rice, different menu options on their high-speed rail. I remember bringing Air to Asia. a meeting. It was AirAsia. It was Air Asia rather than that, the high-speed rail that was, yeah, that had like five different options of different luxuries of what you add to the fried rice and how it would impact upon passenger demands, how much people were willing to pay for it. and trying to make that relevant to a UK audience and like boxed meals, mm-hmm. nice prepared stuff. It was a bit of a stretch, to be honest. Bernardo selflessly yeah. went to, to Bali. <laughs> or on Air asia just to check out that it was that it was <laughs> crazy. So, <Order> yeah. Trooper. <laughs> yeah, I thought that, that's taking multiple
2: scenes. Yeah. But we didn't get it But you know, I guess we must have quite loaded that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, thanks thanks for the question. Um so I've talked
1: a little bit about why transfer modelling and what transfer modelling entails and probably talked it down a little bit, um, but hopefully have impressed the importance of why data is important for modelling to ensure that we have reasonably good quality outputs and why that can help inform decision making. Um, so I've tried to, to pick out a few industry standard data sources that you may or may not be aware of and things that we tend to use quite often in modeling. And then I'll talk through a few recent developments and things that I think might be of interest. Um, but it's worth saying as a, a kind of starting point that the transport sector and rail in particular is already in a, a really good place when it comes to data availability, especially at the moment with some of these recent developments. If you look at kind of um, some of the, the data that DEFRA has to work with uh, on environment and rural affairs, it's it's really poor. They're working on mostly assumptions and a little bit of data, rather than the reverse that we have in transport. So we're in a good place. Um, so I'll mention the, the Office of Rail and Road data portal, which is a freely available resource. Uh, it's got huge amounts of data on particularly uh, like demand, revenue, and performance. So you know plans, trains, uh, cancellations, significant lateness, that kind of thing goes down to a decent level of granularity, you can get like route level data for a particular train operator um, at a monthly or even quarterly level, Uh, and this goes back two decades at least in most cases, it's a really valuable um, resource. Uh, The next is kind of trying to understand more of the why and the behavioural research questions and this is PDFH which is the Passenger Demand Forecasting Handbook uh, and TAG which is um, DFT's Transport Analysis Guidance. So I've heard someone recently describe these as PDFH as your um, your Bible and TAG as your Council of Nicaea in a kind of like classical sense, which I've, I've shamelessly stolen from that presentation. Um, ultimately, two really good resources to try and understand um, how a few different kind of core tenets of, of modelling and forecasting from an economic point of view, but then also thinking about passenger responses at a kind of more generic aggregate level. So how much people care about fares if you drop a fare by a pound on average, is that going to induce much more demand over the long term? That kind of thing. Um, and then it, it's dropped off a little bit since COVID, but the National Rail Travel Survey is a good resource in, in understanding passenger satisfaction from a uh, quite a, a broad range of questions that they ask. So I know it's good for providing a little bit of flavour and um, kind of tamping off a few different um, model outputs and assumptions. You know, if there's only a proportion of a of um, passengers on a certain route who are interested in a particular item. It's not something that's going to be applicable to demand growth for all passengers. It's only really that that segment. Um, and I know there's some work that GBRTTT GBRTT uh, have done on their wavelength survey and the primer and a few
2: different things they're doing, which is also kind of more COVID recovery focused, um, kind of survey uh, information. So that's this those? It's 20 years with the research that's been in a people who in Of course, so, um, so really first uh, that most of that is not yet in uh, And so, there are some people who are looking at this and say, well, water this 20 years worth of work. And you looking to really basic things. But you guys think. Was thinking about uh, what, when looking it, when so what, uh, two is really it to 10 and 10 before, mm. I
0: think that's why I wanted to talk a bit about the underlying kind of behavioural science stuff. Because in the olden days, you just go to the PDFH, try and localise it a bit, and then you'd have a kind of forecast or not localise it and get into a mess, which we can pick up later. But um, really now we've got to go back a bit more to first principles about well, what are people doing, what are the trends, and, and what's the underlying reason that these trends appeal to folk. If we can get our heads around that, we might be able to salvage bits. But I dare say that a lot of it is back to,
1: back to the start. We've I mean, been doing work now to update PDFH, but even that isn't the work they'll do. I think is probably going to finish this year, next year for a a published update, but even that's not going to take into account any post-Covid stuff. That's just the last few years of research that might be relevant. We're still quite far behind what's new and what's recent and what's applicable in this day and age, which is a particular challenge. Um, One of of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of recent developments was mobile network data. Um, So I I haven't actually had the opportunity to play with this in any in any kind of great way or any level of detail, but I've sat through enough presentations to be able to regurgitate some of the information I've absorbed. Um, and I think this is something that, as a, a recent development, has come into the fore a little bit more uh, recently with Network Rail signing a contract with BT and EE for um, their mobile network data, which I believe should be freely available to train operators.
2: If not, it's definitely for local authorities. Yeah, okay. I
1: think mainly exploratory rather than commercial, but still help to, to answer some questions and
2: give them an idea. Um, so the, the main, uh, I guess, advertisement for BT&E's uh, solution rather than
1: other mobile network data uh, sources, such as from Telefonica and Vodafone, is that they've massively improved the, the kind of spatial um, resolution of their data. So we've got a kind of before and after, top and bottom here. Before, they used to basically take your mobile phone, pinging off different cell towers, triangulate it between three different ones and try and work out roughly with those dark splodges where people are moving so you'll see there that there's no way you can tell from like a you know from times and places whether someone's moving by rail, rail at all whether they're walking whether they're going by car and actually there's a few different stations within that blob so it'll be difficult to tell even which if you could work out the are using rail which stations they're moving between with a kind of i think it's more bluetooth based things and also a greater density of cell towers. They've been able to do the, the kind of geo mobile network data grid-based allocation, which is something they're really, really proud of and are talking a lot about. So I'm sure we'll, we'll talk to you more about it if you're interested. And the idea behind this is they can do a much more kind of uh, narrow spatial resolution based on a, a grid allocation to work out based on the timings that people are, are traveling and these pings. Are people going by a road? Are they going by a rail? And you've got a better idea of, if they're moving by rail, you can kind of tell on which lines and from which station. So it's really uh, an improvement on trying to understand your base demand. How many people do you have going between A and B? How many of them are by rail? How many of them are by road? Um, there's a lot of limitations with this data in the interest of time. I won't go into all of them now. Um, but I've kind of listed a couple on these slides. Um, and it's also worth noting that BT and EE are trying to overlay some of this data with uh, kind of timetable information to actually allocate different individual movements to train services rather than just routes or modes, which offers a really interesting opportunity for modeling crowding, which has historically been a, a bit of a pain and something quite complicated to do in terms of how you allocate different people and different services, even within the, the same routes. Um, So next is my my bus slide. I won't spend very long on it, I promise, Uh, but I wanted to justify having it in here as a a kind of nod to open source data. So the Department for Transport basically published the Bus Open Data Service in the last few years. Uh, And it's a really interesting um, project, I suppose, from an open source point of view, where they've massively increased the amount of uh, information on different bus services available to everyone. Uh, So both passengers as well as modelers and everyone else. And um, so in terms of like performance delay data, bus fares and timetabling. So not all of this has been used. If you're at a fairly good bus stop, you'll be able to get an idea of when the next um, kind of buses are coming and if the delays, they'll let you know about it. But in a lot of places, this hasn't reached that far. Um so there's the opportunity for this data to be used a lot more. And especially with some of the kind of questions about intermodal um, kind of integration, we've talked about this is a, a resource that's freely available to use and, and might be interesting. I should note as well that it is updated very frequently. When I took the screenshot for the slides, it was half 4 on the 29th of December, so there will be a more up-to-date data source. Uh, it's, it's just that I didn't update the screenshot, so that's um, Finally, I wanted to do a little spotlight on the Rail data marketplace, which is, a, again, a fairly recent development that I know John, you might have had some involvement with and previously, which is managed by a rail delivery group. It's meant to be following open source ideals and kind of a, a central online platform for various sources of rail data. I'm sure as C2C and Trinitalia UK, you'll either be taking from this or contributing to it. So you'll probably know much more about it than I do. Um, while not everything on there is freely available, some of it requires paid subscription. There are uh, elements such as the Office for Rail and Roads, full origin destination journeys matrix, which are on there for free that you can access after subscribing. Um, which is kind of sort of going towards uh, open source and has still, even though it requires subscription, um, encouraged the development of some open source tools. So the couple of plots I've got here are from uh, a data scientist called Will Deacon, who's produced a tool called Kingfisher. Um, pretty funky stuff. He's produced a, a fairly basic plot of the whole of 2021, 22, where people moved to and from across the whole UK rail network. That in of itself is a nice picture piece. But the thing that I think is really interesting is that the kind of screen tap, screen cap I've taken in the bottom right, which is from his Kingfisher tool. So he's produced this open source tool, which is freely available, that you basically input a station. So I've popped in Fenchurch Street in that example, and it will instantly produce you the plot of from Fenchurch Street based on this origin destination matrix, where are people going? And I think it's no surprise that C2C movements are kind of the predominant driver. Of, uh, of, of demand from fenchurch Street, mostly short distance, but then thinning out as you get out like, into South Endingley and South Essex. So, really interesting opportunity and a good example of making data more available, inspiring the development of tools which are then also
2: open source and, and free to use. I think it's so I think, I think it is 820, 820, 820, 820. Well, That's interesting. interesting. It was like in the country, wasn't it? Dartford was the busiest station.
1: It <laughs> was like a timetabling thing because of really high frequency between those two, that it was, no, I, I remember it was something of it being. It's demographics,
2: okay. so the, uh, the proportion of key workers and workers mm-hmm. are still out to so go It's work being very high during COVID in South West. So yeah, you know, some people got to stay at home, room at least not it's mm-hmm. uh, what the past. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Good <laughs> um, well, good yeah. <laughs> so, yeah I mm-hmm. so, um, we think It was a really wow. interesting, it a nice community that African people, and with. going to talk go to, the market, we to, to the so deeper, kind of like, stuck we with as a hobby. There was a really good opportunity to talk about specific problems in terms of data We kind of thought that without a head, I would not be able to solve that problem, but they could have seen in terms sensitivity. There was a fact in there that when I put some opportunities to go, it is my best place to go to the inside, whatever it is, um, and somebody else has this hot screen of open. That's, that's a really interesting explanation. Yeah, and the, the,
1: the kind of plots that I've shown from um, the Will Deacon are a really good example because he's just a hobbyist. I've never heard of him before. One of my colleagues showed me the, the tool on a kind of Tuesday afternoon at the end of lunch or something that was produced, I think, within a couple of weeks of the, the OD matrix being put on the, uh, the real Data Marketplace. So, so it's quite nice to be able to put some data on somewhere and let someone else do the hard work and reap the rewards. It's, it's what it's all about, really. And... Um, so I've talked a little bit about data and how it can inform transfer modeling that then informs decision making, trying to justify that flow. Um, and as we've talked about a little bit today, we're in a, a kind of midst of a bit of a data revolution. We've got a huge amount of, of data available, often at a kind of more and more granular detail. And it's also more regularly updated and closer to real time, especially if we think about some of the mobile network data as well. Um, so while that's a great opportunity, it also introduces a bit of a problem. Traditional tools like using your Excel or anything else aren't able to handle the level of data that that is being produced if you want to use it in in an efficient way, which is where data science techniques like machine learning and artificial intelligence are really coming to the fore and coming to prominence as solutions, and they're especially hot topics at the moment because of concepts like digital twinning and you've got your chat GPTs and large language models which have kind of captured the uh, popular discourse as well. So I wanted to make the point of noting that uh, the Digital Twin example of, of Houston station modelling that you mentioned, David, is a really good example of this. But AI and, and machine learning are actually a lot more pervasive in transport already than we might think. You think about connected non-autonomous vehicles, facial recognition at your passport gates and that kind of thing. Um, but from some of the work I've done with the Department of Transport in informing their kind of roadmap for AI to 2030, it's come clear that as a mode, rail has a, a lot more opportunity than has, has kind of experienced development so far. So we've got a potential for a huge amount of growth and benefit from machine learning and data science <laughs> solutions. Um, I've kind of spitballed a couple of ones uh, at the bottom of this slide, but the one I wanted to draw upon in a little bit of detail is um, the predictive maintenance of, of rail assets. And this is, again, coming from a someone who's only ever done consultancy and modelling, so doesn't have a huge appreciation of the operational side. So it might be a little bit meaningless, but it's a, a kind of technology and workflow that's been trialled in Japan that uses the same kind of image recognition con- uh, concept and technology that you will have in probably some of the, the digital twinning type of stuff. I guess you mentioned that was LiDAR, maybe not. Um, but similar to facial recognition software, where you basically mount the camera on the front of your train, as it goes around the network, it will produce a continuous feed of your track asset, uh, and you'll train through a little bit of supervision and artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithm. To identify early signs of deterioration on that track asset. And suddenly you've got, you know, single trains that are going around the entire network, covering the entire thing, giving you early warning flags of where you need preventative maintenance. So it's going to cover a lot more ground than site visits. Uh, and it's going to be a lot cheaper than kind of doing routine maintenance at specific points and has the potential to, you know, really negate any safety issues before they become problems. So there's real potential there as a concept at, at the very least. Um, I've talked about quite a few things and, and dipped in and out of kind of modelling data and data science, machine learning, AI, so I wanted to focus on a few key takeaways. Number one, and I think it's, it's come across quite a lot already today, is there is so much data out there um, that half the battle is knowing where to look, but a lot of the times it's also quite you know difficult to find something, and even if you find something, knowing about how to use it, um, but it is there, and the more uh, kind of cognizant are of the different data sources, the more benefit you can derive from them. Um, The next is again, kind of to piggyback on some of the hard work that's already been done for other modes, but also in other sectors, particularly from a a data science perspective, healthcare and and no surprise that security and defense are really, really far advanced in terms of like image recognition software and tools that have been developed that are almost off the shelf, ready to apply to a new perspective. like a nice two-pronged middle point is all about connections, and hopefully that's a theme that I think has come through uh, quite nicely today, which I'm, I'm very grateful of. So, firstly, the kind of whole point in well, originally have, hoping to have everyone in the room today was, was trying to build and establish these these collaborative networks, foster innovation and knowledge sharing, as well as lessons learned to bring efficiencies. Which is all about you know some of the from an organizational perspective, CTC Trinitale UK is already very lean. How do you kind of pick a few little bits of low-hanging fruit to bring? small incremental wins into your organisational efficiency. Uh, And next is again the point around uh, intermodal integration, thinking about the whole door-to-door passenger journey as you've talked about in some of the earlier presentations. Um, One of the other final points I'd like to note is that a little bit of awareness actually goes quite a long way. Um, I'm not expecting myself or anyone else in this room to be the people who are actually developing and making the machine learning algorithms and AI that's going to help introduce savings in future and manage these huge spaces of data. But having a little bit of, of literacy in the benefits of artificial intelligence, what it's good at uh, what it's not good at can really help in having an open mind and helping to push the agenda to bring change while not actually doing the, the developing necessarily yourselves. And so a little bit goes a long way. Um, yeah. Finally, a little call to action that we need all the people in this room, kind of future-focused, bright minds uh, to try and innovate, bring these efficiencies and look to the future after what's been a pretty devastating shock to rail after COVID. Thank you. A couple of questions
0: uh, that just came out of that for me. Um, I was going to ask you about PDFH, but I think we kind of picked up on that in in the discussion. Um, One of the things we spoke about here is you've got things like mobile data, things like digital twins, and we had the question earlier from Ben about where we can try and scope the scale, the size of the prize. Um, you know, is it feasible to think that actually we could take some things like the mobile data and have digital twins to, to help us understand what's happening in the wider transport
1: world or is it a little bit too advanced uh, for us to be doing just yet? It's a really great question and I think it, it comes down to actually practically how do you kind of take these things and develop them and from kind of the, the bitter experience learned of trying to bring these kind of things into Sistra uh, without funding and, and try and build up a bit of reputation. It's all about building things up incrementally. You know, you, you can start today building a huge digital twin of the CTC network and it will take you probably a fair amount of money and a fair amount of time and you might not have something that's very accurate at the end. So you're better off starting with smaller projects, getting a, a minimal viable product of, you know, a small part of the network that you can build and understand, perhaps using mobile network data, perhaps building on some survey data and station counts, more traditional sources to get started and then continue to improve it bit by bit. So that each improvement is, you know, drives a little bit of benefit that will then kind of pay for itself rather than going whole hog and and losing direction along the way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I've got to kind of ask, you
0: know, how did you envisage this sort of automation and, and data science uh, team in Sistro, and how did you actually get some some real buy-in for trying
1: it and acceptance of the results? Because that sounds like a chain of quite hard things to do. I might have dressed it up a little bit during the presentation. I'd, I'd love to spin a great tale about, uh, you know, it was all uh, divine in, uh, in, in inspiration, but actually it was basically from a chat in the pub, as all great ideas come from. Uh, myself and a colleague had started tinkering with different tools using Python and BBA, basically to get ourselves out of doing more of the monotonous processing and work that took up a lot of our time as, as fairly junior consultants um, and start to inter- like get ourselves interested in adding value and doing more of the kind of visualization and, and telling a story based on the data. So it was sort of work shirking originally, um, but with a little bit of development, you can actually cut out a lot of the manual processing. It cuts out risk in human error from copy and pasting between multiple spreadsheets if you're doing the same thing even a few times especially with, with quite large swathes of data. And with consultancy, you tend to do repeat work with clients or similar work with different clients. So once you have a tool that's fairly robust, it's only taken a few days within your existing project to build it, you can then apply and get continual cost savings. So that's how we got the buy-in. Um, there weren't really any plans for funding up proper Data Science Initiative because it requires cost and expertise and knowing where to start. So we pitched the idea of, actually, we don't need funding, we just need you to let us have a go. And if it doesn't work in six months, we'll put our hands over and you know put our hands up and go back to copy and paste. I
0: mean, in terms of because I'm looking at David now, has got a lot of experience of sort of trying to launch innovative things. Is, does that feel like quite a good approach in terms of having a proof of concept and being quite casual? What, what's your what's your gut feeling? Yeah,
2: on the scale risk, invest the potential risk reward of trying to do it. But uh, um, so far as you're able to do some uh, things uh, for try to like you know risks then what could be a bad decision is a whole network as well. Could be something that a oh, lot or off, you can't do them like that whatever it is, but yeah, uh, I think the other thing as well is finding being really honest about where you've got the capability expertise so and where you don't, yeah, and finding really good partners. Maybe bring that in just for a little bit. So, when are talking about Mr. You know, John's question of building a corporate team. You know, the University of Birmingham has would a great deal sort of flexibility to all Or if it was for research purposes, there was a topic you didn't necessarily need, but they've done that work. So, why why would you start start yeah. again? It's about
1: learning from what's been taken before and, and trying to identify if there's something that's been done that's off the shelf that you can learn from. It's a little bit of You know, they have the expertise of digital twin and modelling in that sense. You've got the domain expertise of how the operation runs. There'll be benefit to both sides in working together.
0: Well, that was really interesting, Callum. Thank you so much. Uh, Lots of fascinating stuff to reflect upon there. Well, um, I hope people will stick around for part three. Um, See you again shortly.